Hello and welcome to this episode of Physical Attraction, which is going to be the second and final part in our little series on climate doomers. In the last episode, we broadly described the definition of a doomer, the types of arguments that they make, why they're fallacious. And in the next episode, I want to talk about why it's so important to combat this and why doomers doom a little bit more. So let's get into this. Roger Hallam, co-founder of Extinction Rebellion, notoriously said on the BBC, quote, I am talking about the slaughter, death and starvation of six billion people this century. That's what the science predicts. So let's talk about the supposed scientific recipe for this claim. First, obviously, assume we'll go through the highest emission scenario for climate change and make no further progress from today. Indeed, reverse on some of the progress that's likely already happened. That would then give you four or five degrees of warming by 2100. A couple of scientists once controversially said that in a four degrees warmer world, the Earth's theoretical carrying capacity might be down to one billion people. And then this is somehow equated, given that there's seven billion people alive today, that six billion people will slaughter, die or starve. This is not a particularly robust way to make an extremely dramatic claim, in my view. It ignores a lot of the countervailing scientific evidence and studies that have been done on food security in a climate change world, which come to much less dramatic conclusions. Instead, Cherry picks one quote, not a study, but a quote, from a couple of scientists about Earth's carrying capacity. And by the way, people will say that we've already exceeded Earth's carrying capacity and we're into overshoot territory and what we're doing now is unsustainable. So if you were to say that Earth's carrying capacity is 3 billion people, then that would imply that 3 billion people should die instantly, but that's obviously not what is happening. So Climate Feedback, which is an excellent website where climate scientists review things that are said in the media about climate change, and I do urge you to look up uh, if there's an article that you're interested in, if there's something that you'd like to see. They're very good at responding quickly to these things. Um, they had a whole article on this quote with responses from four to five climate scientists which deals with some more literature into the effects concerned. One notable point, of course, is that agricultural yields have tended to go up as our technology has got better and been more widespread. For us in the future, this might be GM foods that are more robust at surviving the effects of climate change. In the past, we've seen things like the use of fertilisers and so on that have uh, done this alongside breeding of more effective crops that are more resistant to droughts and pestilence and so on. If such agritech is developed, then maybe we can grow more food than we think, but this is an unknown in the climate impacts modelling. Of course, we remember from the Teotihuacan series, for those of you who've been around this long, that Malthus had a claim that humanity would run out of food, but such claims have never come true. And we could feed 10 billion with the food we grow today if it was properly distributed and if we didn't eat inefficient foods like meat so often. So again, it's not entirely clear where this necessarily comes from. And of course, are we going to evenly distribute the food? Well, we're not doing it at the moment, so there needs to be a change there. But again, it just emphasises once more the point that I'm making, which is that this stuff is dependent on what humans do. And we do have control over these institutions, you know, more than we think we do. If we all act together, then we do. So again, he's making a huge claim with not that much evidence to back it up. Why would Roger Hallam say such a thing? Well, like Bendel, he has an academic background, but from the social sciences, not climate science. There's nothing wrong with that per se but I think it does change how he views his own role and the concern that he has for scientific accuracy. And ultimately, he's an activist who believes that only a radical movement is going to lead to the social change that he wants to see. 
and that the existing institutions are incapable of reforming themselves to address climate change. I can respect that. I think there's a strong argument for it, in fact. Many others in movements like XR, although it's not their official position, believe that, for example, capitalism cannot solve climate change and can't be reformed to solve climate change. And you can make an argument for that too. I'm not persuaded by either side of that debate, to be brutally honest with you. I would love to see capitalists reform themselves to deal with this problem. I think some of them are doing a lot better than others, but none of them have quite figured it out yet because it hasn't been achieved anywhere yet. I think it is a fascinating debate and it will be the subject of one of our Climate 201 episodes. So you can argue these positions back and forth, but the point is this is what Hallam ascribes to and what he believes. And he is willing to twist the scientific evidence and misrepresent it and claim that this is some kind of consensus argument and be polemical because his aim is not about being accurate, but about creating the social movement that he thinks will cause the change that he wants to see. And just because there are good arguments for those social positions, maybe, it doesn't mean that Hallam is making a good scientific argument when he says that six billion people will die according to science. He's being a propagandist. He knows that that kind of bold, sweeping, dramatic, overly confident claim is the thing that gets you attention, whereas the more nuanced claim that you could make uh, would not get you anywhere near the same degree of attention. And he suspects that the changes he wants won't arrive unless the public believe it will wipe out humanity. So the message is not really about saying something that's true, or indeed something that is a reasonable response to the situation that we're in, but about the political impact that you hope it will have. Which is many things, but it's not science, and it's not scientific consensus, and it should not be presented as such. I'm suspicious of anyone who's willing to throw the facts out the window to support their political agenda, rather than making an intellectually honest case for their point of view and what they want to see. How is that any better than denying that it's happening at all? The Doomers present this perspective of climate risk that is simply incorrect, given our best information, but it's not only incorrect, it's a misrepresentation that is actively harmful. They slip, because it's inconvenient, into portraying climate change as some looming disaster likely already inevitable, and at the flip of a switch in five or ten years' time, the crisis will be upon us. But this is inaccurate. A better way to think about it is that every bit of warming does two things. It takes us further away from the climate that we've adapted to live in, and it makes extreme events, including feedbacks that might accelerate it further, more and more likely. Each bit of warming does material damage to some people, and makes the world even riskier. For the physics-minded among you, it's a bit like adding more energy to a Maxwellian distribution of velocities with that fat tail. The distribution shifts along so that everything is hotter, and the tails also get fatter, indicating more risk of extreme events. But the point is that when you frame it like this, which is the scientifically supported reality, you suddenly see that it's not some looming disaster that will flip on and off like a switch. Instead, every bit of warming matters, every tonne of CO2 that we emit matters, every tonne we can avoid matters, and every action that we take has an impact. Each of these things makes the world less risky. Each of them saves some damage somewhere else. So we can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good here, even as we strive to do a lot better. And we can't give up, even if we look likely to miss the Paris Agreement goal, because it won't be the end then for making a safer and less damaged world for all of us to live in in the future. And if you genuinely did believe that climate change was inevitably going to lead to human extinction, and maybe in a few years or a decade, wouldn't that justify doing almost anything to prevent it? Acts of violent terrorism, overthrowing democracy? Wouldn't it justify immediately engaging in risky geoengineering schemes to suck CO2 out of the atmosphere, or block sunlight to cool down the planet, without considering their consequences, or trying to model out what they're going to do? I mean, we're going to be extinct anyway, right? So we may as well give it a shot without considering it. 
even more fancifully, wouldn't it justify, for example, making attempts to massively reduce the world's population? We've talked on this show before about the possibility, and I'm not saying it's a probability, but it is a possibility, that you could end up with sects of people who would want to radically reduce the world's population, and they may have access to the ability to do that with things like bioengineering and new technologies. If you believe the choice is between human extinction and killing six billion people, and you have this sort of long-term perspective where you think that human extinction is the worst thing that could possibly happen, well, from that cold, utilitarian point of view, there would be an advantage to creating that virus that would kill that many people and allow society to be reconstituted on a more sustainable footing with a lower population. I mean, is, is, that, is that the end here? Is that the end to this logic? Where does it stop when extinction is the other option? What is not justified? And this is not just necessarily going to be an ideology that is used by the left either. Because I think we can say that, you know, Roger Hallam is of the left. But it, when you make these misrepresentations, they can just as easily be used to justify eco-fascism. After all, if you accept that doomsday-like scenarios are inevitable, and there's nothing we can do to help, maybe you think it's time to put the walls up. Block those climate refugees. Treat it as a military problem which requires a military response which will protect wealth for the lucky few. And if you start talking about reducing the world's population, question whose populations eco-fascists would seek to reduce. This stuff has already shown up in the manifestos from the mass shooters in Christchurch, New Zealand, and El Paso, Texas, as part of the incoherent justification for what they did. So there are as many reasons that people espouse doomism as there are doomists. In some cases, I think you have to emphasise that some of this is down to the impacts that social media has. I think for some of these individual figures, they find a niche and an audience that laps up their content. The doomism obviously advances their own career because they're staking out some radical position, regardless of whether they actually believe it or not. And in the world of social media, that's the best way to get attention. Deep Adaptation, for example, is a pamphlet rejected from academic publication because of the shoddy standards of its argument, as we've discussed earlier. It makes a lot of familiar arguments. Some are accurate, valid and alarming, such as the descriptions of some of the worst-case impacts of climate change and the role of neoliberal economics and vested interests in holding back progress for many decades. Of course, some of the arguments, as we've talked about, are much less convincing and much less accurate. Yet, because it's framed in this unique way, it's concluding that collapse is inevitable and that this is the real truth of climate change, which everyone else is in denial about, a dramatic and striking conclusion, it boasts about its 500,000 downloads and all of the attention that it's got for its main author and the movement that it started. A summary of our situation, you know, if I wrote one that didn't come to the same doomy conclusion, but instead sort of walked this tightrope, uh, which I think is the closest you can say to reality about where we are, and, you know, something that was a bit more scientifically accurate and a bit less cherry-picky than Bendel's work, that wouldn't get the message out, that wouldn't get me any attention, you know. But if you predicate this on a notion of collapse without defining how that is and what we get there, and if you uh, write in this emotive and uh, excessive language and in this uh, polemical fashion that doesn't deal with the nuances of your situation, yeah, you do get more attention. So on this question of collapse, 
yeah, I can imagine horrifying scenarios where it becomes increasingly difficult to sustain the life support system that we have on Earth at higher and higher levels of warming. I can anticipate that at high levels of warming, some regions and cities could become uninhabitable. That is a, a genuine and terrifying projection from climate change that could happen due to the high wet bulb temperature in some of these regions, particularly when you get up to three, four, five degrees Celsius of warming. You can already see that it's putting pressures on societies. And again, as we said, a huge aspect of the question here is how resilient societies can be and how resilient the international community can be. And, you know, if, if you're like me, you have a perception that the way we structured our societies and our politics and our approach to prioritising things at the moment is not particularly resilient. One needs only see the response to the coronavirus pandemic to see that there's a lot of resiliency that could be built into the system that isn't because we're chasing other things instead, like short-term profits. And of course, international cooperation, that's not something that we have a lot of at the moment. We've seen that again, evidenced by the pandemic. You know, this is a complete tangent, but the World Health Organization budget, I uh, asked people what they thought it was, and their estimates were 30, 40 times more than it actually is. The annual World Health Organization budget for the organization that's supposed to be curing extant diseases and defending us against pandemics and all the other things it's supposed to be doing is about the same as the Marvel movie, the latest Avengers movie, got in the box office. So that gives you an idea of the priorities that we have as a species at the moment. And given that, given the complex interactions between the uncertainty of climate change and how our societies will respond to it, anyone who tells you that they understand or can predict exactly how societies will respond to it how nations, communities and organisations will respond to it, is wildly overconfident. This stuff is hard. But that's why you should also reject people who tell you that societal collapse is inevitable. I think in many ways it's also a bit of a false binary too. Something like societal collapse could occur if climate change and environmental destruction and degradation alongside worsening inequality get bad enough. Although of course we have to remember when we think about this that these collapses are much likely to be much worse for poorer people in some places, harvests have already collapsed, influenced by climate change. Erasing that fact and that injustice is its own form of denial. It is plausible that this sort of thing could happen. But it's equally plausible that things just get worse and worse and worse and harder and harder to sustain without there being some non-linear transition to a collapse. And certainly when you say that such a thing is inevitable, it suddenly makes attempting to deal with it, or head it off, impossible. And yet this is also at the heart of the deep adaptation paper, the argument that there is near-term societal collapse is inevitable, which is why we should focus on adapting after the collapse, and even survivalism over trying to actually address and prevent the problem from happening. Following the route of Duma logic takes you to some pretty dark places. There is a clear and disturbing pathway between this and the near-term human extinction support group, where you can't talk about anything hopeful, and eco-fascism, where the only sustainable path for humanity is in depopulation, or the intentional end of any kind of industrial or technological civilization, There might be a few people who are attracted to this line of thinking who are only a few steps away from Ted Kaczynski. One point that has been made in these discussions is that when you look at an intellectual movement like deep adaptation, beyond this idea they emphasise a lot, like simply preparing ourselves emotionally for the end times, or occasionally focusing on resilience like food security, which is a good thing to do, there aren't that many practical proposals or policy proposals on what we should actually do to avert the apocalypse. It's a movement of powerlessness, and I think we have more power than we realise. 
A fundamental assumption of the movement is that there's nothing we can do to stop what is coming, and even on the side of ameliorating the disaster, they're often very vague. But deep adaptation specifically gets its unique take on climate change by concluding the situation is hopeless. The point is not to advocate for any specific urgent measures to cut carbon emissions, because everyone is saying that, so it wouldn't get attention. Nor is it to advance solutions, as mainstream scientists and scholars do, policy experts do, even if you can disagree about whether the solutions would be effective or how likely they are to be implemented. The point is to tell you the problem's insoluble. I think a big reason it gets so much attention is because the narrative first tells you you're correct when everyone else is delusional, like conspiracy theories do, which pose themselves as revealed and rare truths which not everyone understands. But the other thing that's important is that it also absolves you of any responsibility to fix the problem. Not even through a revolution, like Roger Hallam might want. Instead, the focus is on emotionally preparing yourself for forming small communities to survive in the aftermath. Now, I don't think anyone listening to this who's listened to me before could accuse me of being unwilling to talk about how important it is to prepare for catastrophes. It's a theme we talk about all the time, but there are people making these points much more effectively. For example, there are organisations like AllFed, the Alliance to Feed the Earth in Disasters. They're looking to try and work on ways that we can feed the Earth's population if a catastrophe happens, which significantly damages our current ability to produce food. I think that's a great thing to do. I would be in favour of devoting large amounts of time and effort to this kind of insurance policy. Just as I think that creating a huge array of vaccines to ward off potential pandemics is a worthwhile use of money and efforts too, when you compare it to so much of what we do spend our money on, and we do spend our time on, we do spend our civilizational efforts on, and the kind of jobs that we give to people, you know. I think that that would be a great thing, but that's a practical solution. That's a practical problem that people are trying to engage with and solve, and it doesn't start from an assumption of we're doomed and civilization is going to collapse and nothing we can do can stop it. It starts from an assumption of this could happen, what can we do to prevent it? But these practical efforts are not the primary focus of the doomers, which prefer to criticise climate scientists for being in denial about the true depths of our predicament. The focus is instead on these emotional and spiritual preparation thing, which, yeah, it's important to validate your emotions and your feelings in this time, and you know we'll talk to people a lot more about that, but that, that's not all you have to do. Unfortunately, though, this is no longer even just a social media movement that is clogging up the inboxes of climate scientists, nor is it really small enough to ignore. Plenty of the scientists I know and follow are increasingly having to talk about this defeatism or deal with allegations by people who are clearly influenced by it. One thing recently that came up was Team Muskox, which are the people who are uh, trying to chart a pathway, basically, between doomism and optimism. But it's now become a big part of the climate conversation and it's slipping into the mainstream. We were all rather depressed when the author Jonathan Franzen, and full disclosure I did like the novels of his that I read, um, but we were all rather depressed when he chose to weigh in on climate change in the New Yorker last year and went full doomer. The essay was called, What if we stopped pretending that the climate apocalypse can be stopped? Obviously it's a bit annoying that Franzen, and to a lesser extent folks like documentary maker Michael Moore, who was behind Planet of the Humans, have suddenly decided to take an interest in climate change, our patch, our area of expertise, only to immediately say that we're all liars selling false hope and the world is doomed, to pick their narrative and then find the evidence afterwards, without taking any actions in between to try and help the situation, while peddling falsehoods that are actively misleading and unhelpful. And of course this is all about, as well, getting attention for their pieces, which if they were more realistic takes on the situation, probably wouldn't get published at all. Here's what Franzen had to say. Quote, 
You can keep on hoping that catastrophe is preventable and feel ever more frustrated or enraged by the world's inaction, or you can accept that disaster is coming and begin to rethink what it means to have hope. End quote. He then went on to trash the IPCC's entire work based on a single article in the magazine Scientific American. He also claimed, ludicrously, that scientists only ever quote lower bounds, i.e. if a scientist says that there might be two degrees Celsius of warming, quote, it means at least two degrees. The rise, in fact, might be far higher. This is obviously bunk because we quote the median out of the range of climate sensitivities in the middle, and when you hear people talk about the ranges of temperatures, they will talk about it as a range. They won't talk about the lower bound. Quite often when they're emphasising the impacts, they'll talk about the upper bound. If he'd read a single paper, if he'd read any climate scientist talking about their work, he would know that these things are expressed with a probability distribution most of the time. But obviously he hasn't, nor does he care what the truth actually is, because he's making a polemic. He then followed up with the immortal line, As a non-scientist, I do my own kind of modelling, and proceeded to tell us his opinion, as if for the first time bestowing all of us who care about climate so addled by our scientific approach, the radical idea that it might be a rather difficult problem to solve which will involve people doing things. And there's another classic Duma canard in there that I want to draw attention to. You know, the reason I'm attacking Franzen is partly because this article was so popular, but also because it was just like a checklist of all of the incorrect stuff that has been flying around. So he says in the article, quote, In the long run, it probably makes no difference how badly we overshoot two degrees. Once the point of no return is passed, the world will become self-transforming, end quote. So again, no, we have this incorrect idea that feedback loops mean climate change will inevitably accelerate away from us once we cross a certain threshold. But that's not supported by the science, nor is there an idea that we have this point of no return at 2 degrees Celsius. 2 degrees Celsius is chosen because we know that the impacts will be bad beyond there, and it's also chosen because we know that it's the range beyond what we normally are capable of. And also, yeah, because it's a round number, but it's not that we know that there's some point of no return that gets passed and the world suddenly accelerates off into some doom spiral. That's not settled science. That's not something that most people believe. But it has been propagated by doomers, and then Franzen has repeated a totally misleading version of it in an article that's likely to be read more times than most scientific papers, published entirely because of its dramatic message. Setting the threshold where feedbacks kick in at 2 degrees Celsius is not based on any evidence. Some, like the melting of sea ice, have already started. Others, like say the collapse of the thermohaline circulation, that is the ocean circulation that relies on temperatures, gradients and salt gradients, that influences things like the Gulf Stream, which is why Britain is slightly less cold than other places, although you wouldn't know it. These things aren't expected to occur until much higher temperatures are reached. And then even worse, he says, it makes no difference how badly we overshoot 2 degrees Celsius. Well, I can't tell you how wrong that is. The one thing we can be certain about all these feedbacks is that they obviously get worse and more likely to be triggered the more warming we put into the system. If we can stop all emissions at 2.1 degrees Celsius, whatever feedbacks hit us with would be much better and less damaging than if we emitted twice as much carbon if we warmed to 4 degrees Celsius. This is scientific illiteracy that ultimately only serves inaction on climate change by saying that if we get to a certain point, we're doomed and there's no point in doing anything. I mean, that is denial by another stripe. It's an awful, awful article. And the only thing you get from reading it is a smug sense from Franzen that he knows what everyone else doesn't, that the war on climate change is lost, and the only thing that's worth doing is going and tending your allotment. The new kind of hope he refers to is just sort of shrugging your shoulders and enjoying the rest of your life. Which is both wrong and unhelpful. 
The sad thing is that many more people will probably read that article than the brilliant, inspiring and practical work of many writers, scholars and thinkers I admire on climate. So having had a go at doomers and briefly identified and refuted some of their most common arguments, which again is done in more depth at the Open Democracy article if you remain unconvinced, I just want to reiterate why I've written this episode and why I have done this argument here. Because I know there are some people who see the same world I do, who deeply care about fixing these problems, who care about how we can address climate change. And I know that they will have a lot of sympathy for the Doomer arguments and their emotive approach to climate change persuasion, if not necessarily their prescriptions for what we should do about it. And it is true that the Doomer narrative is superficially attractive, which is why it's shared so much. A little like a conspiracy theory, it invites you into an inner sanctum, imparting knowledge about the world, a sense of determinism. You know what's going to happen, collapse, while everyone else watches and waits. Throw in a dose of feeling like you're smarter than mainstream scientists, of course, and that helps too. For some people, it emotionally resonates with them and how they're feeling about our situation more than hope when they see how abject our failure has been to deal with the problem and how long we've been ranting and raving about how this should be dealt with and how it hasn't happened. It's probably no coincidence that the Duma movement gained a lot of strength with the rise of a flat-out climate denier to the presidency in the United States. And I also recognise that a lot of people have been in the fight longer than I have. I first started paying attention to climate change around 2007-8 when I was a teenager. Since then, emissions have inexorably increased while governments, corporations and individuals faff about and delay in full knowledge of the problem. I can't imagine how much more despairing you might feel about the situation if you were warning about it 20 years before I was. I know how tiring and how alienating and how awful it can be to look around and see a world that seems to be accelerating towards a decline, that seems so uncertain, that contains so much injustice, that seems so dystopian and unfair, and seeing other people who have given up on trying to improve things and are only concerned with what they can keep for themselves. I know how depressing that is. And I know how inadequate in the face of this problem, the things that we can do and the urging to our small group of people to keep up the fight and all this sort of thing can often feel. So I understand if people have sympathy for doomers, or at the very least people who feel very pessimistic about our situation. But I want to finish by reiterating why I think we really need to keep this in check. So I'll explain why. First off, obviously, making incorrect scientific claims, obviously incorrect scientific claims, innumerate claims, doesn't just make me write snarky podcasts about you. It delegitimizes you. If Bendel's laughable, mathematically ridiculous arguments are, are, are the mainstream of climate science or the face of climate science, then we're in trouble. The people who want to stop climate action, and believe me, there are still plenty of them, will say, look at these maniacs predicting 6 billion dead in 10 years, it's ridiculous. And then in 10 years, when that doesn't happen, they'll say, all of these alarmists just predict all of this nonsense and, you know, they're, they're lies, it's not based on science, it's not based on reality. It's muddying the waters because we're not speaking with the United Voice about what's really going on, and it allows people to dismiss you and tar the entire movement with the same brush. That just makes it so much easier to refute the legitimate case for much more urgent action and your own activist movement when you're loose with the evidence. And of course, you again become so much easier to dismiss when you're not proposing anything practical. 
if you're saying that the UK needs to get to net zero in the next two years or something, and that doesn't happen, where do you go from that? And if you don't have any policy prescriptions, but you're just telling everyone that we're all doomed, then what are you asking people to do? What are you expecting the response to be? Thankfully, I think of late, XR have removed some misleading quotes like the Hallam one from their website, which I do approve of. I'm not saying people should be right straight away or that we should all have the accuracy of scientists, but there are resources, there's climate feedback, there's lots of different places that you can go to to get balanced perspectives on claims that are being made. And I think it's really important to do that. The second reason we should oppose this is that it encourages solutions that, to my mind, are unhelpful and unfair. If you believe near-term societal collapse is inevitable, that's practically the same as one of the narratives that fossil fuel companies and people who don't want action on climate have long pushed subtly, that it's simply going to be too expensive or difficult to prevent the catastrophe in the first place. And once you have that idea that societal collapse is inevitable, you might focus only on adaptation, self-preservation. Look at all these billionaires who think they can colonise Mars as some kind of solution to climate change, as opposed to actually dealing with the problem. You know, this is the fantasy that comes with telling people that, that we're doomed. And you need people to have a proper understanding of the science and what it says for us to get that message across so that people are actually supporting these things. Because all of this stuff is just a displacement activity otherwise. And if all you're focusing on is self-preservation, we won't unite together and fix this problem. Any hope of the international cooperation we need is gone. Such a world would be worse for the worst off now, and things like eco-fascism are not off the table. Thirdly, to push their case, doomers have to underestimate what we have actually achieved. Because I have good news, people. The energy transition is underway. Renewables are the cheapest source of electricity across most of the world, thanks to how much they've been deployed, thanks to how much research has been done into them. And a lot of that is down to the climate movement that made this happen. They're outstripping fossil fuels in new installations now. Electric vehicle sales are increasing at a rapid rate. It's already the case that the worst case emission scenarios are looking less and less likely because of the technological changes and because of the transitions. 20 years ago, you could make a solid case that the most likely pathway was ever increasing emissions through to the end of the century. And there wouldn't have been a great deal that people could possibly say to demonstrate that that wasn't true. But now, there are plenty of credible analysts who think that emissions may have peaked or plateaued already, or are close to peaking. Countries are making pledges to hit net zero, and they're making policy, and they're making plans. People are being elected on the back of their climate policy. These things are happening because of the climate movement. These things are happening because of the scientists and the engineers who have dedicated their careers to it, but also because of the people who have pressured the politicians, who've raised awareness, who've got people thinking about this, who've made people want to pursue solutions. And that is an achievement. That's a massive achievement. We have potentially already changed the course of future human history with this movement. But if you're a doomer, you can't admit that. You have to say that we're doomed anyway, that, that nothing is going to change, and that there's no hope. There is hope. We need to do so much more. We do need to do much, much more to achieve what we're doing. But we can't erase what we have achieved. I don't think we're home and dry by a long, long stretch. But the, the doomy narrative is just unrealistic of what's already happened. The targets that are being made are ambitious, and we need to do a lot more to achieve them, particularly in the sectors that are falling behind transport, industry, agriculture. But if we do hit them, we can stave off the worst-case scenarios that doomers want to say are inevitable. 
So this is happening and you can be part of it. But this brings me on to the final point. Doomers demotivate people. If people believe that societal collapse is inevitable and nothing will stop it, why devote any time to trying to fix the problem? Better to just bury your head in the sand and enjoy life while it lasts. That's basically what Guy McPherson says on his website. It's all about enjoying the last few days that you have in love together. This can become the strangest of background beliefs, like people who believe in the rapture or that they'll die young, people believe there's no point in the future, and it subtly erodes people's willingness to build that future. Think of all of the people who are dealing with eco-anxiety and despair, because they're not hearing the message that this is something we can fix together. And we need every one of those people on board. Because there are reasons that you feel despair, and that's that the message that is relentlessly pounded into our heads at all times, is that you are powerless, you can't do anything, it's beyond you, everything's controlled by market forces and not human decisions. All you can do is to retreat into a little bubble, focus on getting through the days, distract yourself with entertainment and consumption, be thankful that things aren't worse, and try not to think about it. And what the doomers are peddling here gives you more license to feel that way, not less. It reinforces those ideas that are holding us back. And ultimately, these are messages that reinforce the status quo. It's true. Your individual actions are not going to fix this global societal problem. But that is why we must stand together. The information and the prospects are scary. The trust we have in institutions to tackle these problems is minimal. Our energies are stretched with a thousand different priorities, And the last few years, it's really felt a lot of the time like the world can seem like it's disintegrating. And I get that after so many years of hearing blasé optimism about how we can fix it and technology will fix it, and seeing our CO2 emissions continue to grow over that time, it can feel like there was little hope. And I don't want to tell people that those feelings are somehow invalid. They're not. But just like pessimism... Just like optimism, both of these things should always be leavened with a real message. It's like Steven Pinker's book, where he congratulates humanity for wiping out smallpox for just $350 million. It's a great thing that we beat smallpox, but doesn't that just show you how much suffering we could alleviate if we spent serious money on global public health? $350 million is less than we spend on Halloween pet costumes every year. I don't want to see rank fatalism, or starry-eyed complacent optimism, I don't want to see these things that don't motivate people to do things that make the world a better place. And this is the problem with doomism. It promotes this incorrect long-term notion of powerlessness when the reality is that we humans hold the power. Pretty much all climate scientists still agree that while some damage has already happened and more is already inevitable and more is likely, the vast majority of our fate, the difference between those dystopian futures and the livable ones and the good ones and the just ones, is still in our hands. The difference between a climate change world and a truly catastrophic outcome is still well within the grasp of what people do over the next decades. And that's you, as part of the institutions that you're in, individually, collectively. All of these things. As a species, we are not doomed. But we need to work together, rather than retreating into paralysis, misery, solipsism, self-obsession, or fatalistic despair, as doomism would have us do. What worries me is that if people get an overwhelming sense of dread and despair and doom, then they might go for what seems to be the inevitable consequence of that, which is apathy. 
I have known despair in my own life on numerous occasions. Sometimes deep enough that I had to remind myself that I wasn't capable of thinking rationally about where I really was at that moment I was stuck there. And when you experience that type of despair, there is a very harsh reality that you need to understand on this subject. Which is that there is a fine line between validating your own emotions, which is extremely important, and allowing yourself to suffer and wallow unnecessarily and in a way that doesn't take you forward and that doesn't help. Because ultimately, believing we're all doomed is a mentally comfortable position. It is a deterministic position which absolves you of all responsibility. Since there's nothing that can be done, you may as well not attempt to do anything. Since others don't understand the true reality of how doomed we all are, they can be safely ignored. Doomism is a self-defence mechanism, people. It gives you licence not to act. Much like believing there's no problem, it doesn't require you to do anything. And the one thing I can tell you for sure is that when people do nothing to address the problem, nothing gets done. And I don't believe we have that luxury. So, I won't give up, and neither should you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Physical Attraction. Remember, if you have any comments, questions or concerns, you can get in touch with us, our website, physicspodcast.com. There's the contact form, I try to respond to everything that people send me there. We're on the cesspit of social media as well, so do find us and track us down there. On the website, you'll also find ways that you can support the show financially, including through Patreon and PayPal. But the best thing you can do, as ever, we rely on word of mouth to get out the message here. So please do, if you've enjoyed what we're saying, uh, tell as many other people who might be interested in listening to it as you can. And if you have any comments, questions, concerns, responses, I'd love to talk to you. Get in touch with us via the contact form. Until next time, then, please do take care. So in the next episode, I want to talk a little bit more about why doomers do. Thank you for listening to this episode of Physical Attraction. Remember, you can find us on the web at physicspodcast.com. There you will find the full archive of all of our episodes that we've done in the past. And you'll find the contact form. You can get in touch with us with any, any comments, questions or concerns that you have about the show. Please do. I love hearing from you. You can get in touch with us on social media as well. We're on Twitter at physicspod. And there are ways you can support the show by donating to us through Patreon, subscribing and getting episodes early. All of that information is on the website at physicspodcast.com. Until next time then, please do take care. Hello and welcome to this episode of Physical Attraction, which is going to be the second and final part in our little series on climate doomers. In the last episode, we broadly described the definition of a doomer, the types of arguments that they make, why they're fallacious. And in the next episode, I want to talk about why it's so important to combat this and why doomers doom a little bit more. So let's get into this.